Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to this word, your word, a very simple word, a very straightforward, plain word, and yet a word with much depth and meaning and significance for us as men, for us as husbands and fathers, and really a word for all your people today. Lord, we ask that you would make us mindful of your truth That, Lord, we would not simply know it and understand it, but that, Father, we would obey it and do so with great joy and completeness and cheerfulness of heart. That, Lord, we would do it without delay as well. And that, Lord, in this way, you would be pleased to be honored and bless the families here in the congregation. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Men, you get to listen to God's word. You get to listen to your pastor preach a sermon to himself. And you get to overhear that sermon today and take God's word with you. This is a word for me. This is a word for you, men. This is a word for all of us because there are things here even for uh, wives and for women all of us here gathered today. This is a word for young men who desire to be married, and you should. This is a word for young women who desire to be married as well. So it's a word really for all of us, directed to men. Four simple points. Four simple points from the phrases here in the verse, and we'll take them in turn. What is God's will for husbands? First of all, Husbands, you must live with your wives. Husband, you must live with your wife in an understanding way. You must live, husband, with your wife in an understanding way. God speaks to us so clearly. God speaks to us in those areas where we are tempted and where we sin and fall and fail. Right? We noted last week that if Christian women are tempted to be quarrelsome and loud and vain in their pursuit of a kind of false beauty, right, in verses 1 through 6, then what's the temptation for Christian men? They're tempted to be harsh, to be overbearing, to be unrestrained in their leadership. Now, we want to be clear what God says here, because oftentimes uh, this type of sermon is preached And, you know, preachers kind of tiptoe around the women. But then when it comes to the men, they just let them have it. All right? Don't walk out of here. You you understand this, right, if you compare Mother's Day sermons and Father's Day sermons, right? Men, don't walk out of here thinking, well, God wants me to be weak. All right? And we're going to talk more about this as we work through the text. No, God made you for strength. God made you for leadership. God made you for authority in the world, in your workplace, and in your home. But men, you cannot simply use uh, brute force. You may not use brute force of will to lead your wife. This is why in Colossians 3, 
God's word for husbands is simple, right? In Ephesians 5, there's a lot of other things going on, right? Uh, husbands, love your wives. Uh, consider them as, as your flesh. You are a one flesh union, and so on and so forth. In Colossians 3, it's very simple. Husbands, don't be harsh with your wives. That's the temptation for Christian men. And the key for us, brothers, is to exercise firm Biblical, strong authority without authoritarianism. There is in the church, there is even in the Reformed church today, a great attraction to uh, certain personalities on the internet. Like an Andrew Tate, which is talking with someone who, who's fascinated, a, a, a brother in Christ fascinated by this man, Andrew Tate. Now, we, we can't look to a guy like a hideous man, like Andrew Tate, for what it means to be a man, right? Leading with anger, leading with insults, with violence, yelling, breaking furniture. If this is the way you're leading, brothers, you have to forsake your sin. You have to forsake the old creation. It's not who you are. Again, we need to make proper biblical distinctions. God requires men to have what I call a biblical-tuned fierceness. A a biblically-tuned fierceness. If someone comes to attack your wife and your children, the wrong thing to do would be to be passive and indecisive. You must meet them. You must meet those attackers with a biblically-tuned fierceness to provide and protect for your family you need strength you need physical spiritual moral strength but not everything again proper distinctions requires the same level of intensity and strength not everything is defcon one if all you have is a hammer everything becomes a nail that needs pounding, that needs hammering. If you have only one mode of operating, brothers, you are going to crush your wife and your children. And so you must live with your wife in an understanding way. What what does this mean? Let's fill out the picture from God's word. It means, the word here for understanding is know your wife. You must know your wife. And, And one of the first things you need to know about your wife brothers, is that she is not you and that she is not a man. We know this, but let's state the obvious. Men make very bad women. Wives, if you want your man to be a clone of you, he's going to be a very weak, he's not going to be a woman, he's going to be a very weak man, very effeminate man. And women make very bad men. So women... Wives, don't try to be your husband. Don't try to be a man. And husbands, brothers, don't expect your wife to be a man because she will end up becoming a very warped and distorted woman. If you want your wife to be just like you, what you want is not a wife. What you want is a clone of yourself. But God hasn't given you a clone of yourself. He has given you a wife, a helper, a companion, a friend to honor, to love, to sacrifice for. 
He has given you a wife. So let your wife be feminine, be tender, be weaker than you. You must know your wife. Brothers, I ask you, do you know your wife? I don't just mean here in the Hebrew sense of the word, right? Sexually. Amen. You should know your wife sexually. You should know each other sexually. And that's the only way to know another person sexually. It's in the bond of marriage. It's obvious, but let's say it anyway. But what I'm saying here, what scripture is saying here is, do you know your wife beyond and besides the sexual intimate relationship? Do you, do you know your wife in, in, in other ways, broadly, comprehensively, never exhaustively? We're not God. We're never going to know our wives in every single facet, perfectly, completely. But do you know what cheers her up? Do you know her joys? Do you know her fears? Do you know her desires? Do you know her ideas, her ambitions, her dreams? Do you know your wife? Do you know how she faces disappointments and disillusionments and frustrations? How how she deals with the frustrations of her life? Do you know your wife? Brothers, you go to work. Many of you, some of you do the hybrid thing. That's, That's fine. But for those who go to work, you go to work and your wife is with your children. Do you know what her day has been like? Do you know the rhythm of the day? Do you, do you know what challenges she faces as she mothers those children God has given you, as she trains those children God has given you? Do you know your wife? Do you know how she's growing in Christ? What, what information, what podcasts, what books, what articles is she taking in, right? What, what is she being formed by? What is forming her mind, her heart? What are the dominant shaping voices in her life? To know your wife here, you see, is to be able to lead accordingly. It's not just to have theoretical knowledge, brothers. It's to say, I know my wife and I know how to address that which she needs. Physically, materially, emotionally, spiritually. Does it mean to live with your wife in an understanding way? It means you must know your wife. But two more things. It means you must cherish your wife. Imagine saying, I love my wife, but never spending time with my wife. You know your wife, you understand your wife, and you spend time with her. You cherish her company. Too many evenings away not good it's an invitation for trouble too much time away is an invitation for trouble but rather you should say i find joy in my work outside of outside of the home right and i find greater joy in my home i can't wait to get home i can't wait to be with my wife and my children and and yeah i know sometimes they're rambunctious and they they annoy me and I'm frustrated but you know this is what my wife has to deal with as well and and your wife's presence should refresh you it shouldn't be um with the guys um with my wife right it should be oh I love my work I love my friends but I love my wife 
Her joy should bring you joy. Her troubles should trouble you. You must, you must cherish your wife. But then, finally, here, as we consider this first point, living with your wife in an understanding way, you must speak with your wife. You must speak with your wife, right? It's not just quantity time, it's quality time, it's both, right? <clears throat> it's not just, hey, let's both plop down here on the couch and veg out watching YouTube videos or a movie together. That, okay, that's a start. That's good. What else you got going? After all is said and done, do you speak with your wife? Don't just speak to her. Speak with her, right? Don't just talk about the businessy type stuff, the schedule, what's going on tomorrow, what's going on next week. That's great. That's good. But what else? What else forms your conversation? You must listen attentively. Actively, respectfully, without interruption. Because your wife is your wife. You must ask questions. And beloved brothers, God calls you to lead your home. You're the head of your households. But you should never lead your home without consulting. And without valuing her opinion and her input. Matthew Henry had a very famous way of putting it. He said, Eve was taken from Adam's side, neither from his head to rule over him, nor from his feet to be dominated by him. Rather, she was taken from his side to be his helpmate, to be standing next to him and honored by him. Beloved brothers, your wife is your companion, your friend, your helper, your partner in the mission God has given you which is what? To serve God, to to build a godly home, to cultivate and build the kingdom of God. So why would you belittle your wife? Why would you disregard her input? Listen to her. Speak with her, not just to her. Speak with her, not out of a slavish agreement or subservience to her, right? You can't do anything without consulting her. No, you listen to her because you love her and because she is your companion and helper given to you by God precisely for that reason. You are, brothers, first of all, to live with your wives in an understanding way. But secondly, notice what Peter says here, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, as the weaker vessel. Your wife is weaker than you. It's a fact. Physically so, yes, proven in in so many studies and proven by human history and proven by the the way civilizations operate, Uh, not just the, the Christian ones, but all civilization, it's a fact. But there's another sense in which your wife is weaker than you. She's weaker than you in terms of leadership. Husbands have a strength by virtue of God calling them to lead and to be the head of their households. But just because you're the head of your household, because God has given you your wife, God hasn't given you your wife so that you can compete with her, so that you can crush her. You would probably win every conceivable strength competition, right? And then what? 
And then what? Your ego's been inflated. Your, your flesh has been satisfied for a while. And then what? You've left your wife dishonored and weakened. Some things are stronger and some things are weaker. That's the way God ordained the world with such diversity. Diversity of nature, diversity of function, and of tasks. Consider the oft-used example when considering this verse. A vase, a vase, a vase that holds flowers. A vase is different from a baseball bat, right? If you take those two images, those two items, they're different. A vase, in many ways, is weaker than a baseball bat. But oftentimes, it's more expensive. A vase cannot be used as a bat to hit baseballs because that's not the nature of the vase. A vase has a different function from a bat. It's meant to hold flowers. It's meant to beautify the home. It's meant to bring cheer to a family. It's meant to speak goodness to others. It's meant to lift up the downcast. But simply because the vase is not a bat does not mean it is less honorable. But rather, the vase is honored when its true nature and function is recognized and respected. And brothers, this is what we are called to do with our wives. Yeah, of course, they're not as strong as we are. But that's exactly why you are to honor them. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, speaking of the body of Christ, and we can make the application to the one flesh union of marriage. The weaker parts of the body are covered, are given more honored. They're protected and, ex- and, uh, and not exposed and exploited, right? Your pinky's probably the weakest of your fingers, but it's the one you're, you're right, very tender about. And you're thoughtful about it, right? The pinky t- toe, right, is the one that is most easily injured. So you're very careful about it, right? But just because it's, it's weaker doesn't mean you exploit it. It means you honor it even more and protect it even more. And women have a kind of God-ordained weakness that husbands are called to honor. A tenderness, a softness, a, a kind of concern for care, a pleasantness. And all of these things, beloved, are given in the pursuit and in the task of bearing and raising children. That is why historically, culturally speaking, societies that honored the Lord understood this. It, It was common sense. It was obvious because it was based on Scripture, right? Men held the door open for women. You saw a woman on the bus, on the train, and you were seated. You stood up. You gave your seat. To the woman, right? You honored her by recognizing that she was a weaker vessel. You offer your umbrella, right, to a woman or to your wife, right? If it's raining, you take your coat off and you give it to the woman, right, when it's cold and she, she's cold outside. It's when, whenever there is a disaster or impending danger or death looming, who gets rescued first? Woman and children. It is not a dishonor to acknowledge that they are weaker. It is rather an honor that moves us to address them, to rescue them. 
to be kind to them, to honor them. And this is the mutuality of God's divine design. It's so, it's so beautiful, it's so perfect, that why would we ever leave God's divine design? Women are honored by being helped. I was kidding with one of you here, yes, uh, last week, uh, one of you dear sisters here in the congregation, you were moving a table, right, by yourself, and you were doing a fine job. But I said, you know, why would you do that when we have so many capable men here, right? Women, sisters, you are honored by being helped. And men, you are honored when you help out. Why would we exempt ourselves from this honor that God has given us? Show your wife honor as the weaker vessel. And can I just say a word about submission here? Because oftentimes there's much talk about submission and authority in the home, leadership, head of household, all this stuff. First of all, if this is all we're talking about, we're going to be skewed in our households, right? Households, marriages are more than authority structures, right? Husbands here, women, children following, being led by their husbands, right? There, there needs to be more than simply a discussion of authority. We'll get to that in a moment. But, of course, God calls your wife to submit to you. It says it in God's word. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, Titus 2, 1 Peter 3. But nowhere, brothers, nowhere in Scripture does God call you or me to make our Wives submit. God calls them to submit. God addresses them directly. But God never calls husbands to make or to extract submission and obedience from their wives. You cannot force your wife to submit. You cannot coerce her to follow you. Even if you are convinced 100% of something. Right? You're convinced of something. Where you ought to live. Honey, we ought to live here. Well, maybe she's not there with you. Honey, this is what we need to eat as a family. Honey, this is what we're to believe. You know, Reformed doctrine. We're in a Reformed church, right? Three forms of unity. Budget confession, canons of thought, Heidelberg catechism. Can I let you in on an open secret as a pastor? Pastor's going to tell us a secret. I wish you all believed Reformed doctrine and get your act together and not dilly-dally with Arminianism or free will thinking or all this other stuff, broad evangelicalism. But as a pastor, you know that I can't force you to believe what I believe to be true? I can't coerce you? And brothers, neither can you your wife. If she refuses to follow you, I'm not saying that's not a problem. I'm saying that's a problem that you can't fix on your own brute strength. Brothers, when you find resistance in the world and in work, what do you do? You overpower it by force of will. You overcome it. Please don't adopt this approach with your wife. Don't seek to overpower her. Don't seek to resist her until she breaks Why would you want to break your wife? Why would you want to break the one whom God has given you to nurture, 
to cherish, to be devoted to, to honor, to love. All things in due time. You're convinced of something that's good, that's true, that's right, that's honoring to God. Amen for that. As I said to the sisters last week to pray for their husbands, so I say to you, husbands, pray for your wives, that God would change their hearts, that they would come around to that which is your conviction, that which is true, that which is good and honoring to God. They're not there yet. Pray that God would do the work that you and I, with our brute strength, cannot accomplish. You must show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And then we're given two motives here in what follows the next two phrases. You must live in understanding with your wife and honor her. We're told here, because she is a co-heir with you of the grace of life. She is a joint heir in the Greek. She is a joint heir of the grace of life. Though God has ordained you, brothers, as the head of your household, although God has ordained an authority structure in the home and calls husbands to lead their wife and their home, and although God has called wives to submit to their husbands, we need to state what is obvious here, that there is no inherent inferiority in women. They are co-heirs of the grace of life. Biblical equality is a very vague and probably altogether unhelpful phrase. It often gets uh, co-opted by evangelical egalitarians and by the egalitarian world, the unbelieving world, that says male and female, there's no distinction between them, right? They're interchangeable. There's nothing distinct about being a man. There's nothing distinct about being a woman, right? Those are just culturally conditioned things. Unbiblical, anti-Christian egalitarianism says there is no distinction between maleness and femaleness. That's not what this text is talking about here. Biblical equality, properly understood, simply put, is this. Both men and women have equally been made in the image of God. Equally been given the dominion mandate. They fulfill it in different ways, but they have both been given that mandate. Both men and women, continuing, are equally fallen in sin and in corruption. Equally sinful before God and deserving of God's judgment. Neither men nor women are further from God. We are equally condemned. And yet the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that in Christ, both men and women are equally redeemed, equally reconciled back to God. So that just like there is neither male or female further from God, neither male nor female is closer to God. In Christ, both are redeemed. In Christ, both are washed and transformed both men and women, as Galatians 3 says, both Jew and Gentile, both slave and free. And so husbands, understand who your wife is. She is an heir with you of the grace of life. The grace of God that brings life 
that gives life, that's guarded for us. As Peter said way back in chapter 1, that grace of God that is being guarded for us, that is to be revealed to us on the last day, that's what your wife inherits as well. And so what does that mean? It means that your wife is not your property, but like you is the treasured possession of Christ. It means that your wife is not your slave, but like you has been made by Christ a slave of righteousness. Your wife, like you, has been saved by Jesus, washed in his blood, and inherits the same salvation that Christ will reveal on the last day. And it means more than this, does it not? Because your wife is a joint heir with you of Christ's salvation, you have a great responsibility to your wife. As Ephesians 5 says, to give yourself up for her, to sacrifice for her spiritual growth, to lead her to maturity in Christ, to seek her washing with the word as Christ did to the church. You have a great responsibility to your wife. But again, not to compete against your wife, not to weaken your wife, not to dishonor your wife. Because brothers, if you, if you compete with your wife, guess what's going to happen? So, there's so many awful consequences. But your children will also learn to compete against their mother and will disrespect her and learn to dishonor her as well. No, no, no. You are strong in the Lord. You are to lead your household. You are to know that your wife is a joint heir with you of the grace of life, which means that you are strong to strengthen your wife for her calling before God and her children. You are made by Christ full of resolve. To what purpose? To what end? To encourage your wife. To praise her. You see things that are amiss, awry in your marriage, in your wife deficiencies, moral deficiencies, you are called by God to constructively suggest ways to change and to lead the way forward. In many ways, brothers, you are competing, but not against your wife. You are to compete, if I could put it this way, against yourself, against yourself. We were talking about this a couple of weeks ago in our family. Baseball season starting up, spring trainings taking place in Arizona and Florida. But this is true of any sport. <clears throat> Whenever you play any game, it's true of any game whatsoever, board game or whatnot. In any game, there are actually two games being played. There are two games being played. There's the one game that you're playing against your opponent. And then there's the other game that you're playing against yourself, the more fundamental game. The first game, you might win because of the final score. But you win the second game against yourself because you've played the game the right way. In terms of baseball, you've hustled to first base after every grounder. You've sought to encourage your team. You've hustled. You've never given up on any play. You've been attentive. You've worked hard. Your, your sportsmanship is full of integrity and whatnot. And it's the same thing in your marriage, beloved brothers. You're not competing against your wife. You're competing against the worst version of yourself, which the Bible calls what? The old man. 
your sinful flesh, your sinful desires, and you are called to run this race, not over against your wife, but with your wife, with your children. Run this race with endurance, casting off every sin, as Hebrews 12 says, that easily ensnares you. You are called to crush it in life, but you're not called to crush your wife, but rather you are called to crush your sin. You're not called to antagonize your wife or be a menace to your children. You are rather called to antagonize and be a menace, be trouble to the kingdom of Satan and to your own sin over against the souls of your wife and children. Make war not against your wife, but against Satan and against the tempter's voice that seeks you and your wife and your household and your children. And what you win at the end of this competition is not the applause of men. It's not a reward here on earth. It's not, as Paul says, a crown of perishable wreaths, but an imperishable inheritance, the salvation that Christ has won for you and your wife and your family. Your wives, your wife, beloved brother, is a joint heir with you of the grace of life. You have a responsibility to her. But then there's a second motive here. Why are we to live in understanding with our wives and show honor to them? At the very end of verse 7, we're told, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Your life in Christ, beloved, Your faith will either be helped or hindered by how you treat your wife. And this is the way God has ordained the world. This is true actually of every one of us here, whether we're married, whether we're men or women. When we allow strife in our relationships with others, we're breaking communion with others. But more fundamentally, we're breaking communion with God. We're breaking communion with God. Our sins are not just horizontal, right? In Psalm 51, we are looking at this yesterday. David has certainly sinned against, against Bathsheba, against Uriah the Hittite, who he ordered to be killed. He says in Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned. So God-centered is David's mind that he acknowledges, of course, there's been fallout. But the number one consequence is a break in my relationship with you, O God. Brothers, how you treat your spouse is a good indication. It's a good barometer of your relationship with God. Do you have deep-seated resentment with your wife? It's because you're dissatisfied and discontented with God. You want to control your wife. It's because you want to control God. You want to be sovereign. You you want to be the king of kings. You're angry at your wife. You're angry, and this is true of husbands and wives. You're angry at your spouse because your spouse is not all-knowing. Your spouse is not omnicompetent. You're angry because they, they make mistakes. Surprise, surprise, your spouse doesn't know everything. Why? Why are you angry? It's because you're looking for God in someone who is a mere creature like you. 
You're looking for divine and expecting divine perfection from someone who is a redeemed sinner like you. God is God and no one else is, beloved. And so the word from Peter, the word from God, beloved brothers, is simply this. How can you expect to present yourself before God in prayer when you have trashed your wife and now act like it's no big deal? It can't be done. It can't be done. How, how can you lift up holy hands to God when, when you've, lift up, you've lifted up your heart against your wife or worse, you've lifted up your hand against your wife? Have you despised and dishonored your wife? Then you're not well, brother. But the good news is that Christ is here to make you well. And in his power and in his strength, go make things right with your wife. If you have honored and strengthened your wife, then praise the Lord for that. You can, you can be grateful and you can be humbled before God and continue to cultivate a strengthened marriage before God and before your spouse, our prayers, our life in Christ is hindered, beloved, when our relationship with our wives are dishonored, when we dishonor our wives. Let me make two clarifications as we conclude this morning, and they are both interrelated. They're both tied together. I mean, repeat what I said, right? You have to keep two things. You have to keep biblical distinctions together and not pit them one against the other, right? The, the most biblical man is not the man that seeks to be a woman, right? The clarification number one, God made you, brother, for leadership and authority in the world and in the home. Leadership requires strength. It requires tenacity. It requires resolve, fierceness. It requires drive to get things done in your work. You must compete. You must resist. You must plow and push through. Exert yourself. Exert strength. You must differentiate yourself over against others, right? This is oftentimes the basis of a promotion. Women, you should know this about men. Wives, you should know this about your husbands, that men have... A kind of, uh, my wife and I have talked about this before, kind of pseudo-autism. They're socially awkward. When they need to get something done, they suppress everything else in the world. And they have this, this incredible drive. This is how civilization was built, how societies were formed. They're singularly focused, right? Men, you know what this is like. You would often... Perhaps work all night. You skip meals and you think nothing of it, right? Honey, honey, when was the last time you ate? Here, have something. I can't eat right now. I can't talk right now, right? It's, it's like you, you're married to someone on the spectrum, right? But leadership at work, leadership in the world must be adjusted for the home. What flies in the world of work and in the world, is it always going to fly at home? Think of the captain of a ship. Think of the military, right? Think of those in command giving stern and inflexible orders that have to be obeyed at once. Brothers, this is, 
not going to fly in your house. When you say jump and you expect your wife to say, how high? Have you ever played sports with the bro dudes? You know what this is like, right? When men get together and play sports and play organized sports on teams that either travel or they're in a season, right? We're yelling at one another, right? We're pointing, we're waving our hands. Hey, listen, don't. Don't mess up. You're messing up. You're not passing the ball. You got to pass the ball. You got to rotate, right? We get in each other's faces, right? And if to a woman, it sounds like, oh, they're about to fight. They're... No, no, this is the way men talk. This is the way we are, right? The workplace, what flies in terms of organizational structure and work ethic may not actually fly in the home, right? We, that's, that's what works on a team, is that the way you're going to run your family, right? Getting in each other's faces, yelling, pointing, waving your hand? No. So what, brothers, what's going to help you make that adjustment? God tells us in his word, the fruit of the spirit, specifically one aspect of the fruit of the spirit, which is called meekness. Sometimes it's called, uh, it's translated gentleness, Meekness. Meekness is not weakness, brothers. Weakness, uh, meekness is not moral passivity. Meekness is not being a doormat, letting the world walk all over you. Right? Oftentimes that's how we, we think of it. We think of meekness as a feminine trait, as a feminine quality. It's not. It's a fruit of the Spirit given to men and women, given to all. We are all called to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So what is meekness? Meekness is simply put, strength under control. Strength under discipline. You're strong, men. You're called to exercise authority. But you must use your strength in a timely and in an appropriate manner. And exert it, right? Exert it for God's glory. Exert it for the good of your family. Exert it to provide and protect them and to build for life in Christ in your families, in the church, in your neighborhoods. Meekness is great potentiality regulated well like a nuclear power plant. Nuclear power plants have to be cooled. They get overheated If things start getting overheated, we better leave New Jersey because there's going to be great fallout and fatal fallout everywhere. But regulated well, a nuclear power plant can power an entire state. Men, you have this great strength and potentiality in you. But by the Spirit of God, it must be regulated well. It's not a call to get rid of leadership, to get rid of authority, to be weak. No, don't be weak. Be strong in the Lord. First John, I write to you men. I write to you young men because you are strong. Your strength, your resolve, your drive, your tenacity, your focus, your creativity, your intensity has been given to you by God. But it can be used either for good or for evil. It can be used either for life or for death. Your life, your strength, your leadership can either build 
your family, your wife, your children, the church, civilization, and it ought to, or it will completely destroy all things like a nuclear blast. So, brothers, don't be weak in your leadership. Be strengthened in Christ to lead well in all areas of life, work and family. Family and work. So oftentimes, brothers, and I say this to all of us, brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, we we can so often live an unreflected, an unreflective life, right? We we have plans, we, we make plans for so many things in life. We want to grow, right? We want to have be involved in skill acquisition, continuing education for the various industries we're in, right? We we don't want to be lax, we don't want to be dormant or let skills lie dormant. We want to to, to talent stack, right? We're good at one thing, let's get good at another thing. Let's get good at a third, at a fourth, fifth thing in life. Why don't we do that with the fundamental vocation of wifery and husbandry? We are called by God to grow in this vocation. Sisters, as wives, brothers, as husbands. How can you improve, brothers, as a Christian husband? How can you become a good Christian husband? Goodness, another aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. How can you grow to be a good Christian man, a good Christian husband, a good Christian father? May God strengthen us and help us in this, our vocation. But then finally, the second clarification related to the first. Yes, God calls Men to be strong and to regulate their strength. But power and strength, as necessary as they are, as necessary requirements as they are for leadership, are insufficient by themselves. Are insufficient by themselves. Raw strength and power and authority is not the only thing you need, brothers. As a man, as a husband, as a father, as a leader, you must, in the words of verse 7, you must know your wife. You must understand your wife. You must seek a true friendship, a, a mutuality, a companionship, a friendship in marriage because you together are co heirs of the grace of life. Consider God. Consider the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers. We don't confess that Christ is merely all-powerful and sovereign. He is that. Praise God He is that. Otherwise, we would never be saved if He were not sovereign and powerful. But brothers, we also confess that God, that Christ's power is bound up with His goodness, with His wisdom, that He is not just this all-powerful deity out there, Zapping people. No, he is good. He is loving. He is wise. He loves you. He knows you. He understands us. He forgives and washes his bride with his word. There is a fulsomeness in Jesus Christ. And husbands, you are to follow Christ in your husbandry of your wife 
and of your household. This marks, this verse marks the end of the Haustafel. It's a German word that simply means the household table. Household tables or code of conducts were very common in antiquity. And here we're given by God the code of conduct for the Christian household. This is how we are to live. This is how we are to relate to one another. Wives submitted to husbands. Husbands loving their wives. And the church, you see, becoming the divine society, full of divine life in this society of death. The church is a new creation of Christ found within this old creation of death. And you see, it is living in this way that the church shows forth what? Shows forth the difference that Christ makes. It's in this way that the church shows forth the grace of God to the world and proclaims the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, do help us, we ask, to love you and to live for you. And as men, Father, to take heed to your word, which is our life, And to know that, Father, before we can exercise authority rightly in this world, we are called to live humbly under your divine governance and authority. Help us, Father, to submit ourselves to your word and to live in humble submission to you. And, Father, knowing Christ and knowing his love for us, knowing his grace for us, that, Father, we would live graciously unto others. Not, Father, jettisoning our responsibility or our call to leadership, but exercising them well for your glory and honor, for the well-being of your church, for the stabilization of our families, and for the furtherance of the kingdom of Christ. Father, we pray all these things now in his name. Amen.